Hello and welcome to episode 92 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And this is a podcast where we debate the difficult decisions of, of reading books. Specifically in this episode, in the first half, we'll be asking the rhyming question, do we care what characters wear? Uh-huh. Uh, following on from our do we care what characters eat of whenever whichever episode that was uh, in the second half we'll be looking at two enormous modern books um, Life After Life by Kate Atkinson and Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo mm-hmm. um, one of those rare times we're doing things that you people might actually have read so we better get the, thing, <laughs> <laughs> better get the details right yeah. um, Rachel how are you what are you reading I'm all right, thanks. Uh, not up to much, obviously. Nothing to do. Um, I have been reading a lot of plays, actually, over the mm. last week, which I've been really enjoying because I'm doing a playwriting class, which I think I mentioned last time, mm-hmm. um, which is lovely. And what's so great about plays is that they take about an hour to read. So even if you don't have much time or you don't have much attention span, you can just immerse yourself completely for an hour and then you're done. Yeah. And you get that nice sense of achievement at the end of it. Um, so yeah, I've really enjoyed doing that. I've read quite a few plays. Um, what did I enjoy the most? Let's see if I can recommend anything. I really, I've read a couple of plays by Annie Baker, who's a modern American playwright. Um, mm-hmm. The plays are slightly odd, but I liked them very much. So have a look at Annie, Annie Baker, The Flick, and John are the ones that I read. Um, they're quite good. And I've just started reading Tovey Anson's The Winter Book. Lovely. Which a little bit disappointed that it's not actually a book. It's it's short stories. I mean, you did warn me that you thought it was a bit of a marketing ploy. Um, yes, because they are basically selected from all her other collections, and I think they just yeah. thought let's let's sell this after some of successful. Yeah. So I do feel a bit cheated, but it's still wonderful nonetheless. I'm enjoying that. It's nice to dip in and out of. So that's good. So what about you, Simon? What have you been reading? Uh, I am currently reading uh, A Name to Conjure With by G.B. Stern. Um, oh, you really are on a G.B. Stern. I am on a little G.B. Stern-a-thon. Um, yeah. did, did I talk about G.B. Stern last time? I can't remember. No, but you just but was, you just did a blog post about Yeah, I just read her novel called... What's it called? Just read it. Um, it's called For All We Know. It's one of those sort of non-titles. Um <laughs> I always think, I think I wrote in the review, it reminds me of Alan Aikborn play titles, which are always sort of quite, you know, cat, they trip off the tongue and then you instantly forget them because they've got nothing at all to do with the book or the play. But um, yes, I enjoyed that and I thought I'd read more. And I started reading one that I've, a book I bought in 2002, which mm. when I opened it, I discovered that Name to Conjure With is actually a memoir rather than a novel. Oh. Uh, it's her fifth memoir. And I'm, I'm using. Fifth? Fifth, yeah, I think she wrote oh. eight. She wrote eight. <laughs> and I say memoir is a very loose term. They're basically sort of commonplace books for her own thoughts, I guess. Right. Um, it sort of meanders here and there in a way that I'm really enjoying. Oh, so the okay. theme, of, yeah, the theme of this one is names, hence a name to conjure with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's basically just, yeah, she starts off by thinking about weirdly the play Harvey, which although the film Harvey was out at the time, she'd obviously not seen or heard of that, shouldn't mention that. But um, famously now a play of Jimmy Stewart, he has a, a, a friend who is an invisible eight-foot rabbit or whatever, but I guess was happened on stage first. Um, and she gets thinking about the name Harvey and that goes off into thinking about other things. And that, and it's a sort of, it's a very self-indulgent thing to write, I guess, but I'm also really enjoying reading it. Yeah. Um, so thanks, GB. Gladys 
something. Barbara. Bertha. But it is Bertha, well done. Yes. Which but apparently some more places you'll see Bronwyn because when she wrote her entry in Who's Who she decided to just put it was Bronwyn for for a laugh. She's do you know what she sounds like the kind of person who would really get on my nerves. <laughs> she sounds quite unhinged, but you know, that, <laughs> that I completely like. I don't know if I'd want to talk to her, but I certainly enjoy reading her. And luckily I've got um three or four other books by her around. Well because where I first came across her, where which is where most people who do know her might know her from is the books that she wrote with Sheila K. Smith about Jane Austen. Oh yes, I've got one of those that I've never read. Ah, they're good fun. Um, speaking of Jane Austen and more talk of Jane Austen. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's a similar sort of, here's a thought that I've decided to talk about for a while, feel to them, which, you know, why not? Yeah. I guess I feel like we, should, we should write one of these. Things. Yes. <laughs> Talking of nothing, Talking which would basically be our life, yeah. They are basically, I think they're just the equivalent of podcasts, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Jane Austen podcast, but in book form. Um, so that's fun. And yes, let's go on to our first topic, which yeah. essentially is do we care about clothes and books? But I liked the rhyme of do we care what characters wear? Well, you know, I've I've actually, I've got some ideas on this, surprisingly. Well I'm thinking about um, flowers for Mrs. Harris. Oh, that was on my list. Yeah. Um, which is the what's the American title for that? Is it Mrs. Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. Yeah. Right. Poor Gallico. Um, yes. So there's slightly different titles depending on which country you bought your book, um, and the, that all sort of hinges around her buying an evening dress, doesn't it? Mm, a Christian and Dior one, no less. A Christian Dior dress, which is you know the holy grail for us ladies who like to wear something beautiful. And I love that contrast between her, you know, she's a char lady, she's cleans people's houses, she's a cockney, she doesn't have any money, she always wears the same clothes. And I, I think there's that kind of period of literature is, is really interesting to read. There's some stuff set in the 30s and 40s. I'm going to go off on a meandering, I can oh, feel please, myself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's good, it's this, good that you know it's coming now. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm just, you know, referring to things like uh, the Diary of a Provincial Lady where she says, oh, you know, what will I wear? Will I wear my black or will I wear mm-hmm. my navy? This idea that you literally just had one or two decent dresses you didn't have a whole wardrobe full like people are used to today um and mrs harris has always dreamed of having a beautiful evening gown because she doesn't have anything nice in her wardrobe and that dress represents and it's not like she ever even anticipates herself wearing it i don't think it's just the fact that she wants to own it and what that means to her in the sense of having something beautiful and that making her feel beautiful and then that also reminded me of Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day hmm. by Winifred Watson which is uh, one of the most popular Persephone titles in fact maybe the most popular I think Persephone. so yeah yeah um where Miss Pettigrew is um I think she's a governess is she and um, of, yeah, or a companion or something like that. Companion, something yeah. like that. And she's out of work. And again, she's very drably dressed. And I think she only has one suit. Um, she's down to like, she has no money. She's got one nice item of, well, it's not even nice, but like something that's presentable for work. And then when she's taken up by, um, I can't remember the name of the. Miss LaFosse. Yeah, I've got such a good memory, <laughs> Miss LaFosse. Um, and, you know, she takes her shopping and she buys her all these clothes. And there's just that wonderful moment of of kind of imagining. I don't know if you've seen The Crown, but there's that episode in The Crown that's filmed in Elton Palace where the Queen is, is watching all these beautiful women walking around parading dresses. And it's that kind of 
environment of watching all these women wearing beautiful dresses and for the first time in her life Miss Pettigrew can choose what she wants and it's very much by changing her appearance and, and putting on those evening clothes and being very glamorous that her life overnight can change and I love that idea of the power of of dress and clothes um and I think sometimes there's there's a bit of a snobbery about women who like clothes I mean who like to buy clothes who like to spend money on fashion who like to wear makeup who like to see their hair there, there can be a sense of you know you're letting the side down a little bit or it shouldn't matter what you look like but as somebody who is a you know strident feminist as you all know um I also I love clothes I've always loved clothes I come you know my mum loves clothes my sister loves clothes I grew up in a house where my dad loves clothes actually uh, my whole family loves clothes <laughs> and you know clothes were always and going shopping for clothes and choosing clothes and my mum always has put a huge amount of effort into what she wears what we wore how we looked you know everything we wore even I mean my mum doesn't listen to this so I can say this <laughs> my mum even irons knickers and socks like she's obsessed with everything being us looking neat and tidy and she very much when we were children and obviously she was looking after our clothes for us and dressing us it was like very much a, a judgment on her she felt if we weren't if we didn't look amazing going out of the house um so her big thing was dressing me and my sister in matching clothes which seeing as my sister is seven years older than me um wasn't great for my sister at certain points but that, so, yeah. yeah I know we've got some great photos but there's um this idea of of dress as being transformational and also being something that allows you to feel differently about yourself but also means other people look at you differently and all of a sudden there's different possibilities for you I think in that period of literature for me there's so many books like that that I've read and I think often poor women looking at beautiful evening dresses and thinking if I could access that dress if I were wearing that dress I would have a completely different existence and I love that. Yeah it's interesting that both those novels you mentioned Miss Pettigrew it's Day and um, Flowers Mrs Harris are basically Cinderella stories aren't they uh, and, and it's the it's the moment of transformation into the ball gown sort of yeah. thing. Um, I mean, literally, in, I guess, in uh, Mrs. Harris's case. But, but yeah, uh, I like that. Uh, yeah, I um, I was trying to think about novels where what a particular character wears really stands out. And often, of course, novels are set over a long period of time and the characters change their outfit a lot. So it's, mm. it doesn't stand out so much. But the first thing that came to my mind uh, was Rebecca when oh yes um, yes when the second sister winter uh puts on the big outfit for the fancy dress costume uh, for the fancy oh. dress evening uh shan't spoil for those who've not read it um exactly what happens but it it's lavishly described this dress that matches the painting on the wall um and i guess yeah like you're saying it's all about how other people respond to the person who's wearing that outfit and in mm. that case it's the expectation versus reality i suppose um but it's yeah, it's a really dramatic moment which works because it's such a dramatically described item of clothing as well. If she if she copied somebody wearing you know, a riding outfit or something that she might have worn anyway, it wouldn't have had the same uh, impact. No, um, that is a wonderful scene. It is very very uh, theatrically done. Yeah, I mean, yes. Pretty, uh, yeah, uh, and yeah, like you're saying about the provincial lady, because her she's not only thinking about how other people respond but everything clothes are always economic to her and thinking yes. like oh if fashions have changed now i need to buy a whole new set of 
my, my hems are the wrong length. I need to buy a whole new set of dresses, that sort of thing. Yes, and it's I, I think also in that period as well, it's it's not necessarily that they, they would buy something new, but they would have it remodelled, what they already had. Mm, mm, or buy the fabric and take it to a... Yeah. Um, what's the word I want? Person um, who makes clothes. Um, <laughs> Gosh, seamstress. Seamstress. Yeah. Uh, gosh, I, mean, I, you know, I was just talking about this with my friend earlier. I keep just forgetting words. I think it's because <laughs> I'm not interacting with people as much as I should be. But I think a, a book that's wonderful about that is um, High Wages by Dorothy Whipple, mm-hmm. which is set in a in a women's clothing shop. And the the girl, Jane, who's the main character, she designs the clothes. And it's that, that transitional period between um, clothes that are made by the seamstress for you, like made to measure and uh, ready to wear clothing. I think it's set in, I want to say the Edwardian period um, and the early 20s. And looking at that transition in the book between women choosing exactly what they want to wear, going choosing patterns and the clothing being very personal, um, there's a, there's a scene like that in Jane Eyre when Mr. Rochester takes Jane to the the haberdashery shop and makes her choose all this fabric and she feels very overwhelmed by it because it's too luxurious for her. Because mm. she only has one nice dress as well. Her grey dress that she wears with her little, puts her little red scarf around her neck when she thinks that Mr. Rochester loves her and it's just so sad. Um, <laughs> and that, but that she's best of, off without him, but sure. Yeah. Okay, that's debatable. <laughs> Um, and it's that process. What I really enjoy in, in novels as well of that period is that that process of watching women choose the fabric and then choose the trimmings and thinking about how much more personal and individual clothing used to be as opposed to ready to wear stuff where you just go into the shop and, hey, if it doesn't fit you properly, well, it doesn't fit you properly. I mean, you know, women's clothing is a nightmare as it is. I'm sure all, my, all our female listeners know, you know, you never get consistent sizes between mm-hmm. shops. But, you know, back in the, in, the, in the period of time when you were able to decide exactly what you wore, the descriptions in novels, you know, particularly um, Cranford, Emma is another good example where they're always at the milliners choosing their their ribbon and their trimmings. And that that joy and that pleasure, even somebody who doesn't have very much money, they're able to buy a ribbon for their hat and that way make their hat look different. Um, and I don't feel like when I read modern novels that there is as much of an of an actual focus on what characters are wearing. Uh, often I find that it's the description of what they're wearing is just kind of incidental. It's not like, oh, they're wearing this and that tells you something about them. Yeah, except on the occasions where... A, you know, a poor character is standing out because their clothes are shabby or that sort of yeah. thing. Um, sort of speaking of which, uh, when you're talking about people customising their own clothes, I thought of I Captured the Castle where they oh, yeah. dye everything green. That was, um, yeah, very funny. But also yeah. a commentary on their poverty. So it's, it's this moment where it is very funny, but also they have no, they can't go and get a whole new set of clothes and try again. It is actually a, a minor tragedy as well. Yes, no, it's uh, very sad that moment. And uh, yeah, I was thinking. I also thought of Miss Bliss by a short story by Catherine Mansfield. Um, I think not Miss Bliss, Miss Brill. Sorry, um, where is she's sitting on a bench and she's very proud of her fox fur, and then she overhears people mocking it. I don't even remember that story. You know, what? I don't. I've got. I'm, I will have read it at some point, but it's um, yeah. That's that's sad, isn't it? Yeah, and it's it's it is that transition where she spends a lot of time thinking about how how proud she is of it, and then it becomes you sort of yeah. I think you still, she's overhearing, so it's not shifting the narrative voice or anything, but but it is that difference between um, 
how clothes make someone feel and then how they're judged by others and sometimes those the, the, the clash of those things I guess yeah I'm just thinking of as well um when people take other people's clothes in novels it's quite interesting when um say that happens quite randomly quite a lot in Wilkie Collins novels yeah. where um women take other people's clothes and put them on and they then take on the identity of that woman so um the um, the new Magdalene which I just read uh the character does that that's how she manages to to change um identity is that she takes the clothes mm. from the dead woman uh, or dead woman in inverted commas um and changes their appearance and I'm also thinking of the woman in white as well obviously a very prominent symbol the fact that she's wearing white mm. and um emphasizes her purity that's very symbolic in that sense um and changing identity as well. I'm just trying to think of I've was thinking of something else but it's gone completely out of my mind um well you, sorry no you go ahead i was going to say as, as as comes up time and again on this podcast we know that i'm not a, a visual no uh, reader and you are so when you when you i so if, if a costume is described and it's very important to the plot then i will at least try and think about it i guess but i know that if you're visualizing a scene do other people in specific outfits or oh i mean if they've been described then yes very much so i can always i can always see in my head um what they're wearing and i do have a pretty good knowledge of um the history of fashion one of my side interests so um I, I will be able to imagine that like, if I'm reading a novel from the 1840s, for example, I'll know what an 1840s dress looks like as opposed to an 1860s dress. So I can see that in my head. Um, when stuff isn't as detailed, I find that I'm still imagining a particular look. So, for example, if somebody's always dre- described as looking chic, but maybe they don't say exactly mm-hmm. what kinds of clothes they wear thinking about the period I'd be like oh then they probably look like this or they look like that or if they wear a particular color I find that quite interesting but um it's I can't say it's something I I normally pay a huge amount of attention to apart from if it's you know obviously an essential part of the plot or if there is a scene where they're picking out clothes and the clothes are you know symbolic like you know I, I love a good Victorian trousseau shop Um, (laughs) who doesn't who doesn't but I think as I say more and more in more modern novels I find that things like the close description of clothing and such I don't feel like I tend to get told very often what people are wearing or if I do it's just oh they're they're wearing a jeans and t-shirt yeah I also feel when it does come up people are much more interested in the in the label or the designer and that will be mentioned Mm. prominently whereas as you say in the, the well, as obviously some people were having have been wearing designer clothes for centuries, maybe not centuries, a long time. But in the in the early early twentieth century, they're more likely to have made had them made locally, etc. So yeah. I think I feel like people are more likely to say he was wearing you know Saint Laurent or something rather than what exactly what it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is only really a side note because it amused me. But uh, one of the I really like Helen Hanth's books. I read um, Letter from New York a while ago. And one of the things that made it the most 80s book I ever read was when she she was going to, a, I think, a premiere, maybe, uh, or premiere. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> she put on a purple velvet pantsuit. Oh, like, my wow. goodness. <laughs> wow. That's, yeah, that's 80s for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's nice when you get those kind of retro moments in in yeah. books and you think like oh gosh no one, no one would wear that now um 
And I think, like, if they're making films of this era, this era in a hundred years' time, they'll put people in eighties clothes now, in the way that, in my head, eighteen forties and eighteen eighties are the same period. So yeah, well, I um, hope not. Otherwise, it's the nineties that are back in fashion now, isn't oh, yeah, it? I know. I was thinking, those of us who lived through the nineties, which I think is going to be everyone listening to this. So, uh, yeah, I mean, well, as I keep telling right. my sixth formers, it didn't look good then, and it doesn't look good now. <laughs> if S Club but, Seven couldn't make it work, then you can't make it work. Exactly. It's the message I want to say to people. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, listen, I lived through it. I know it. I'm trying to give you the benefit of my experience, but you know, <laughs> they don't want to hear it. So. <laughs> yeah. um, are there any others that stand out to you? Um, no, I don't think so. I just, I, it's actually just been quite nice to think about. There's more books because I mean, I doubted that we would be able to find anything to say about this. But as always, we surprise yeah. ourselves. You, yeah, yeah. I think so. I think I. It's one of those things where I love it if clothes are a really important part of a plot or or say a lot about the character, and yet don't seem to come across it very often. So it's quite hard to make a decision. But um, I'm going to say I do care, and I'd like to see more of it. Yeah, I think you know you can tell so much about a person by what they choose to wear, and I feel like maybe there should be more focus on such detail. There we so, go. Yeah, There's a challenge to to you authors. Mm. Tell us more. Uh, great. So this middle section, we have a question from Danielle. Thank you, Danielle. Oh, exciting. Yeah, I should have prepped you, really. Um, she, <laughs> she, well, let's see, see if I can find the email. Um, so I don't. I miss... quite like the questions being thrown at us, though. Well, thrown at me That's anyway. True. You yeah. had a chance to think about it, but this is your this is your passive aggressive attempt to make <laughs> me look rubbish every every time. Uh, you've seen through me. There is no Danielle. I've made her up. But, uh, uh, I would have prepared, but I actually actually just forgot about it. I'm just going to read the whole thing because it's nice. I'm a big fan of your podcast and get very excited when a new one drops. It's so great to hear from two people who share my exact and somewhat niche reading tastes. Thanks, Danielle. Uh, a question for you both for your next podcast. What would be your top five comfort slash escapism novels? The more obscure, the better. Ooh. Well... We might might do three if we haven't got time for five, but we'll but we'll see if um, how far we get. Okay, do you want to go first? Sure, let's take it in turns. I okay. guess. Um, so I think because I don't reread a lot, I don't ha- I don't have ones that I go back to time and again, particularly not ones that are obscure. So I'm just going to pick some that I think people might enjoy. And my first one, the first one I thought of. It's Patricia Brent Spinster by Herbert Jenkins that I know you didn't like at all. Oh my goodness. Um, but maybe Danielle should try it and see if she does, which is uh, the spinster in question is 25 oh. and she <laughs> she lives in a boarding house. She makes up a fiancé to get to feel less sad about herself and then goes somewhere and sits next to a man who, because she's being followed by these old ladies from the boarding house, asks him to pretend to be a fiancé. You won't imagine what happens next. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what are the chances? <laughs> I've, that is a book I have reread, and I love it, and I will reread it many times, I'm sure. Um, if you want to hear Rachel's opinion on it, you can go to the whichever episode we did that for. No, my scathing opinion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's yeah. yours? Go for your first one. Um, I think probably I would go for. I mean, this is a very obvious one, but Emma by Jane Austen. I That's just, not obscure at all, Rachel. I know, but what can I say? I just love it, and I love settling into it i love that i know exactly what's going to happen but i also love that every time i read it i find something new so it's like a comfort read but it's also still has the ability to surprise me which i love and i don't really don't think there's many books out there like that and even though emma's not an obscure book i do wonder whether you know a lot of people say that they've read jane austen but i don't think people have always read all of them 
So if you haven't tried Emma, I strongly recommend that you do. And sure, don't I bet, just watch I bet Danielle well. has, but we'll see. Danielle would have done. I'm sorry, Danielle. But, you know, this is for everybody. Yes, good point. Mm. Uh, my second one, I'm going to say Daisy's Aunt by E.F. Benson, but really I just mean anything by E.F. Benson. I love E.F. Benson. I love E.F. Benson, except his very early stuff. But, um, well, I've not read all of it. He's He wrote about a million books. But Daisy's Aunt, I don't even remember the plot, actually. I do remember it, it goes around some sort of one of those foolish misunderstandings that could be cleared up if anyone had an honest conversation for 10 minutes, <laughs> uh, which is my favourite type of plot. Basically, basically, it's a sort of 90s rom-com, but in a, set in the Edwardian period. Um, I love a misunderstanding. Um, uh, so I forget any anything, any details about it other than that it was ridiculous and joyful and didn't make any sense, but in a very happy way. And that describes most of E.F. Benson's books. I just, if you haven't read any, or if you've only read the Mapping Lucia books, um, Danielle or anyone, then I recommend just sticking out anything he wrote from 1905 onwards. Uh, and it'll be good fun. <laughs> Okay, um, my next one is going to be Clooney Brown. Mm, good choice. By Marjorie Sharp, which is wonderfully funny about a girl um, from the wrong side of the tracks who goes to be a maid in a large, lovely house in Devon and all of the mischief she manages to get up to. Um, and it's just charming and wonderful and really, fu- actually really funny as well. And mm-hmm. I just absolutely loved it. And I loved the setting as well. I love Devon. So it's just, yeah, really, really lovely book. Oh, so good. I love Marjorie Sharp so much. Yeah. Anything just, by her is great. Yeah, I've just bought up all the ones that Dean Street Press have reprinted. Because they've well just done, done a bunch of her obscure ones, the hard to find ones. Um, let's stick at three each. And my, my final one, I've got, in case you want some nonfiction, Danielle, I've gone with Ashcombe by Cecil Beaton, oh. um, which. I haven't read for a while, but I should reread. It's, uh, it's Ashcombe is the name of a house which Cecil Beeson leased for 15 years. Uh, and it's basically um, just a story of a really lovely time, having lots of friends there and all those sort of house parties and silly things they got up to. Uh, and it's I don't, I don't imagine I genuinely would have wanted to be part of that set, but it, reading the book, it makes you feel like you would have enjoyed it. Um if it, yeah, it just feels like going on this this lovely, indulgent, bohemian house party for a while. Why yeah. not? Yeah, and it's really beautifully uh, designed if you manage to get the dust check and things. I think it was reprinted at some point. Uh, Edith Olivier was in there as one of their pals. Yeah, I love some Edith Olivier. Really do. Yeah. What's your third one? Um, oh, gosh. I'm just thinking, what would I go for? Um, hmm. Okay. I don't know how obscure this is either, um, but I would go for the Caslet novels by Elizabeth Jane Howard, which are just amazing. And there's five of them. And if you want to just like curl up in a corner with a box of tissues for a weekend, you'll just have a <laughs> wonderful time. Um, I really, so I really must read. I've only read the first one when we did it, but I must read oh. the others. Um, so there you go, Danielle. There's six. We have actually done episodes on four of them i think so you can go and find more of our thoughts on those and indeed we did, we did an episode on comfort reading so there might be some suggestions yes. in there as well yeah i hope that helps um and hope you can get some of them in australia where you are uh if you would like us to answer your question email t or books at gmail.com you can send in an audio question or a written question 
Either would be great. <laughs> um, and uh, the s- s- second half, that's what I want to say. Second half, two novels. <laughs> Uh, two uh, modern three title three word title novels, Life After Life by Kate Atkinson and Girl, Comma Woman, Comma Other by Bernadine Evaristo. I um, love that you put the comments. In. <laughs> <laughs> One has to. <laughs> uh, since I literally finished reading Life After Life yesterday or two, something, can I can I intro that one? Yeah, of course you can. Great. So, Life After Life. The heroine of it is a woman called Ursula. Uh, and the conceit of the novel is that every time Ursula dies, it, the plot goes back to the beginning, although it doesn't retrace the whole thing, but you see another scene of her, of her birthday, literally. Uh, so the first first scene, she's born, but I think it's the umbilical cord gets tangled around her neck and she instantly dies. The second time around, that doesn't happen, etc., etc. Um, and there's various times that she dies from you know, falling out a window or getting various illnesses or being killed or being murdered um and each time it's not quite just avoiding that but it goes on to a different there's lots of different alternate realities happening and it gradually builds to i guess the idea of whether or not you can put together a perfect or purposeful life based on that but does she know it's happening is she sort of semi-aware that it's happening it's all rather all rather complicated mm-hmm. uh, or i should say it's set in uh, so that's in 1908, is that right? 1910? Something like that. Yeah. Um, 1910. Uh, and so uh, you, uh, she, it largely covers the first half of the 20th century. Okay, thank you. Um, Girl, Woman, Other is um, set in contemporary London and it's got, uh, the, it, over the course of three parts, you hear 12 women's stories and they're all intertwining. So... All of the all of the women in the stories know somebody in one of the other stories somehow, or sometimes more than that. And each person's story gives you insight into somebody else from a different perspective. If you see what I mean, it's kind of hard to describe. Yes, it's yeah. like sort of patchwork, isn't it? A patchwork of things, and and it goes over a long period of time. So you've got stuff that's happening right now, but you've also got um, other bits that go back to like the sixties and the seventies, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, that's the... I can't really say much more about that because there's so many different things. <laughs> yes, maybe whilst we're talking, we'll pull out ones that particularly yeah. stood out for us. Um, was this your first books by these authors? Do, or Do you already like these authors? So I hadn't heard of Bernadine Evaristo before uh, Girl, Woman, Other came out. Obviously, it was a Booker Prize winner, so there was a lot of buzz around it. And I assumed, actually, she was a first-time novelist, but it turns out, you know, she'd been writing for years. And uh, this this kind of had... And she, I think she's one of those people that had a kind of solid reputation in critical circles, but maybe mm. wasn't widely read. Um, and initially, I, I thought, oh, it doesn't sound like it's going to be something that I would enjoy. But um, and a lot of people I knew who'd read it didn't like it. So I thought, oh, I don't know if it's going to be for me. But I thought, you know what, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to read it. I need to diversify my reading. And I was just hooked from the first page because mm-hmm. I loved the um, the kind of blank verse style of the of the prose, which really worked for me. That idea of this being women's voices and it feeling very. Um, like you're hearing authentic voices you're hearing speech in a way that I guess Shakespeare tried to to do with blank verse so so what does it look like on the page 
Um, what did you have a Kindle? Because I did the audiobook. Oh, you did the audiobook. Okay, mm. so on the page it looks like blank verse. So there's no capital letters. It's um, it's set out like verse rather than prose. Hmm, interesting. Mm. Because I, I would have had absolutely no idea of that based oh, on the audiobook. Oh, how interesting. Mm. So on the page it feels poetical, but it also it feels like the, you're hearing the rhythm of speech. Oh, okay. So you're getting that kind of immediacy and that connection between the characters and that real sense of each individual character having their own distinctive voice. And that's really what I found powerful about the book is you've got these 12 women, but they all have such different voices. And to be able to create that, I think, is incredibly skillful and to also make you care about each character's journey and weave in those unexpected connections i think the story that stood out the most for me i can't remember all the characters names because you know what i'm like with names <laughs> um i think one of them was shirley the teacher mm. and um her pupil whose name i can't remember um um carol yes that rings a bell and so you have the first the first time you read the story of these women, you hear Carol's version of what it was like being her people and how she felt dismissed by her, belittled by her, she didn't support her, blah, 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 blah. And then later on, you read um, Shirley's version of events and you see how both of the women completely miss up, well, a girl and, and a woman completely misunderstood the other and how a little bit of communication would have transformed that relationship and you see all those missed opportunities and I just found that really affecting really affecting to think how much is missed by us not communicating with each other yeah I found that really striking because you're first introduced to Shirley as this annoying mm. teacher who Kara goes to once for help and then suddenly she can't get rid of her and she's always there mithering her and trying to get her to do extra work and then to Shirley it's this transformative moment in her life when she realizes mm. the power of being a teacher and how she can really help people and if it came the other way around I think it would have had a different emotional impact but, yeah um I mean there's still a still certainly an impact but it really colored how you see Shirley from the as soon as she starts talking because you 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 know her as this pathetic character and then you gradually learn a lot more about her yeah um, and I think with all the all the women, I should say eleven women and one non-binary person. So, uh, yes. yeah, with all the characters, you, um, uh, I think that's the whole to understand is to forgive thing, or not even forgive, but once you you get so deep into who they are that you empathize. Well, I certainly I found I empathized and sympathized with them, even if earlier you'd seen them through a different light through someone else's perspective. Particularly when you're jumping between the mother and daughter. Um, Anna and Yaz, when yeah, just seeing a mother and daughter relationship from different sides, it's really powerful as well. Um, I think the section I found most powerful was Dominique, so that she is friends with the uh, theatre director who open, is in the first section of the book. Yeah. Um, and she's very confident and she is very funny, and then she gets involved in this relationship and moves to America, and then it's this quite. Oh, yes. Yeah, this very yeah. Yeah, dark story of coercive control and domestic violence. Um, and in fact, that's something that both books, I think, did really well, was portraying domestic violence. Mm. Uh, we can jump to the other book, but um, something. I think I think I've found affecting in both of them, but particularly in Life After Life, is that it isn't this big sensational soap opera dramatic thing. It's 
uh, a really dark and terrible thing, but doesn't seem like it's come out of nowhere or doesn't seem... Uh, well, maybe it does sound like come out of nowhere, but it doesn't seem something that couldn't happen. It just seems like, oh, this is real life and this is... Um, I don't know, it paints, paints the characters into a into a corner where they can no longer control it in a really believable uh, way, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Oh, I'd forgotten about that. That was incredibly um, upsetting, actually, to read. Both, both, both. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, my um, the experience of audiobook. I thought at first it might be a different narrator for each section, which it wasn't. It was the same narrator throughout, oh, okay. whose name I forget. And she did different voices, but not dramatically different voices. Um, and I found that particularly when you get towards the end and some characters start coming back, because I couldn't flick back to find out who they were, and because I, you know, I'd listened over several weeks. I, I was quite lost by the end. It's like, I don't remember who this is. <laughs> um, but whilst you're in their lives, it's completely immersive. And I think that's the thing, is that it felt to me like a series of short stories, essentially. I know it's marketed as a novel. Yeah. But uh, it's basically four sets of three... No, sorry. Yeah four, yeah, four sets of three interlinking short stories. So that by the time you get to, say, the fourth set of them, the first one seems so distant. Like it was a different book. I don't know. Um, if that felt different when you're reading it than if it, I mean, I, I read it quite quickly because I couldn't put mm, it down, okay. so I, I didn't. I felt quite connected to all of them. I think it would, it, it would be a difficult book to stay connected with if you were reading it over quite a long period of time. Because there really is, I mean, we find out sort of con- unexpected connections r- towards the end, but ba- basically, there's no connection between the four sections when you're reading them. It's just within each section there's connections between the characters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's just carry on talking about how Simon gets confused easily and talk about Life After Life, <laughs> so, um, which you read a few years ago, didn't you? Yeah, and I mean, I just could not cope with how much I loved it. Um, <laughs> and I told everybody about it when I finished. I made all my classes at school read it. Um, I think it's so cleverly written and so emotionally moving. Um I mean, I was just a mess um, when I got to the end. And I just thought, I just loved that concept of how m- tiny decisions that Ursula makes can have the power to change the whole course of, of her life. So I think um, when she, you mentioned her, her being abused in, a, in her marriage and she meets her husband in that section of the book by choosing to go into a shop. Mm-hmm. And if she hadn't have gone into that shop, she would never have met him. And it's it's little things like that that happen. And there's that heartbreaking section with the neighbour and um, when she gets uh, abducted and mm-hmm. thinking, you know, but if I had gone out with her, that would never have happened. And Ursula gets the chance to, to do all these things again and again. And you mentioned that she's got this inkling of that she does know um she doesn't understand how but she, but she knows there's something different like she can feel it coming she can feel her deaths coming and what i think is interesting is because it's all in the third person we're never really let in too much on, into no. her awareness of it it's just a, so there's not like long passages of her trying to work out what's going on or anything like that it's just occasionally there's a hint in the narrative that she knows it's coming or a yeah. hint that she knows that she's lived that particular sequence before or, or something like that yeah 
And like she gets those moments of deja vu, doesn't she? Where she's like, mm. oh, I feel like I've been here before. But I mean, the opening of the novel is just brilliant when she's in a cafe and she's in Nazi Germany and she goes, and that's the first, the first page, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And she, she's goes to shoot Hitler and everything goes black. And then you go back to her being a baby and gradually as the novel progresses, you see how that possibility of her being in front of Hitler became, uh, an opportunity because she chooses to go to university and study German. But in another part of her life, she chooses to do something else and she ends up married to this horrific person. So it's just, you know, it's incredible. But also what I loved about the book was I loved the character of her mother, mm, how she mm. is a completely disappointed Victorian woman. Um, and she takes that out on her daughter. I love the character of her brother. And there is a sequel with her brother in called A God in Ruins, which is his life. Um, which is, is it the same conceit, or is it just no, a normal? No. no, I thought it would be, but it's but it's not. And I mean, that's a, one of those books where I just had to lie on the floor when I finished, and, because I just, <laughs> and just let the emotions wash over me because it was just too much. Um, <laughs> Got it's... the smelling salts and the bakers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was just like absolute floods of tears. Um, it's just, I just loved, I just loved. I can't talk enough about how much I love that, love that. Love Life After Life. I just think it's Kate Atkinson is such a good writer and she's not highbrow in any sense, but she just writes really good stories. So the Thomases, how, one of the family jokes is how dad can't cope if a film has two timelines in it if it's, right. or a TV show. If it's jumping back and forth, then he'll just sign out he's a very intelligent man can't cope with it i don't think i'm ever going to tease him for it before again because uh, i got so confused when i started reading this book uh for the first 70 pages i just like i don't know what's going on i think because i i knew what this is the central conceit but i sort of assumed it jumped back to five minutes before the decision and then moved on from there and what it does is jump back to the beginning each time mm. and you might you only know, get another page or two of her of the day she was born um and i don't think I still don't really know whether it changes things each time at that scene or if it's just different things that were happening at the same time. I got into my stride and then I lost it again at some point, but I sort of, I think I picked it up again. But I think because it, you have to be an attentive reader with it to work out where those moments of making different decisions are sometimes. Some of them are very heavily signposted and some of them aren't as much. Um, that. At some point, it's like, I don't understand how she's ended up here when she didn't previously. I don't understand how this fits in. Uh, I sort of just gave up trying to understand it, everything in the end, and I just went with it, and I, re and I really liked the book. But <laughs> <laughs> and maybe I just needed to read it more slowly or something. Um, I think part of my problem was that you told me that it was how much you loved it, and I just, oh, no. I don't think... <laughs> it's all these, I know you have this, if someone just tells you how brilliant a book is that you... It's, I know my expectations were so high that although I really liked it, I think it's like, oh, this isn't my favourite book that I'm going to read this year in the way it was your favourite book, whichever year you read it. Um, it also revealed to me something that I've discovered I don't like in books, which is, you know, always great to know a thing you don't like, is that if real people appear as cameos or as small of hearts, I don't mind books based on real life, if the whole thing is, but when Hitler and Eva turned up, it's like, no, I need it to be a novel or not a novel. <laughs> I don't I can't. That's fair, no, that's fair enough. I can understand yeah. that. Reminded me of, um, do you ever read Star of the Sea by Joseph O'Connor? No, but my colleague at work absolutely loves it and he keeps telling me to read it. <laughs> I did enjoy it, but at one point, like Dickens turns up and I was like, nope, don't want that. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. I think it's interesting because whenever anyone talks about being able to change the past, 
the first thing they say is, oh, you should go and kill Hitler, don't they? It's always, it's like a truism. So I like that she worked, I like that she worked in that idea and she told you from the outset, I guess, as you say, it was in that first page. So it's not like it just comes from nowhere. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, it sort of unsettled me a bit. I'm uh, sorry. Yeah. But I, I mean, I, I hope I'm not sounding too negative. I did really like it. I just wish that I, my brain worked in a slightly more intelligent way. So when you were reading it, did you just like understand everything that was going on all the time? Oh yeah, I don't. Things like time changes don't really. Once I've got, once I understand that's what's happening, I can get it. It's no problem. What I can't ever work out is who's killed someone in a detective novel. <laughs> yes, well, I'm better with time than if I'm expected to cope with spatial things in a novel. If it's all about who enters which door or something, then I'm obviously lost. But. Um... <laughs> Yeah, uh, I I really liked Ursula. I liked um, I loved the whole way she talked about each time the death comes, it talks about the darkness falling, and mm-hmm. she always found new and often quite moving ways to talk about that moment. Yeah, and so there's one where I can't remember exactly this, but it's something like she fell towards the darkness, and the darkness was like a hug or something like that. And so yeah. other times it's much more shattering, and it's um, and I really liked the bit where <laughs> you're going back and forth over the uh, Bridget, the the maid keeps going to London and coming back with. What illnesses that she's got? Spanish flu, I guess. Yeah. Um, and they, she keeps trying to find ways to avoid this, and it keeps not happening. And the ones like the dark, the darkness, etc., or yeah. something at the end of a chapter. That yeah, was yeah. fun. <laughs> so yeah, it's not a funny book usually, but there are funny moments in it, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um. So which would you choose then? Yeah, it's a good question. Um. I mean, there's so much in Girl, Woman, Earth that we haven't had time to discuss okay. because it is, it's like a whole world, basically. Um, I think maybe Girl, Woman, Other, just because of the emotional depth and the variety in it. And it, it's one of those books where the more I think about it, the more I remember so many fully realised, wonderful characters. In Life After Life, Ursula is fully realised. I think we get a lot of Sylvie... There's a handful of others, but it's only really Ursula who are completely in, inside her mind, well, not inside her mind, because we're never allowed quite in, but um, you know, she's the one who stands out, whereas there's 12 astonishing standout characters um, no. in uh, in Girl, Woman, Other. Um, I think with both of them, if I had a more, I don't know, a brain that worked in a different way, I'd <laughs> really, really love them. As, I, as it was, Girl, Woman, Other wasn't on my top. 10 books I read last year when I read it and I don't think Life After Life is going to be in my top 10 books this year but um, I'm so sorry Rachel <laughs> um, I mean you didn't even finish my my favourite book last time so yeah no to be fair yeah <laughs> uh, this just means I've got better taste than you so <laughs> I knew it I knew it <laughs> can you explain the significance of foxes to me before we before you choose your, your favourite one what are all the foxes doing well in the book yeah, they just keep they keep turning up all over the place. Well, it's because it's the name of the house. Well, I got there was up. yeah. Is that I just wondered if there was like some sort of I don't know Greek think, myth about foxes or something. Weird. No, I think it's just a reference to fox. The fact that that's where she grew up, and it's like a theme of her life. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, well, well, you love both these books a lot. So which? Which I know. Is I mean, to be honest, it's it's a tough choice because they're both excellent books in quite different ways. And I mean no disrespect to either author by choosing one over the other because I do think they are both genuinely brilliant. And you can't do a booker thing and, and tie Bernadine to with someone I'm again. I'm not going to be a booker <laughs> judge and break the rules. Um, I am going to 
say I think just because it had such a powerful emotional effect on me I'm going to go for life after life which is a book that I think everyone should read and no one can fail to love (laughs) Uh, if anyone has read it I'd love to know if you were at all actually no I know people were confused because I put on Instagram I'm so confused at this and then universally people told me at some point it just clicks into place and then it'll be one of your favorite books Uh, and I just and it it did click into place and then and then it unclicked. So I'm sorry. That's all I can say. Yeah, but well I done s- for reading it, nonetheless. Yeah, no, I still really enjoyed it. I just, um, I'm just old now, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. My mind is withering. Yeah. Um, so next week, next time rather, we'll be doing two books with, well, as as uh, Rachel mentioned earlier, we're doing the winter book. Uh, or a winter book. The winter book? I don't know. I can't remember. By Tervi Janssen. Uh, I hope I've pronounced that correctly. And uh, the summer book, also by Tervi Janssen. Yes. Um, which are translated from, I want to say, Finnish. No, Swedish. They're translated Swe- from Swedish, yeah. Swedish. She was a Swedish speaking Finn, not a Finnish speaking Swede. Yeah. Yes. Always got that confused. Uh, and they're really short, so why not join in with us? Oh, please do. They're very good reads. Okay. Lovely. Well, thanks very much for listening, everyone. Thank you, everyone, and we'll speak to you soon. Yeah. Bye. Bye.